It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the HuffPost politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett, Paul War, Ned Simons and Graham Demonique. This week we will be discussing pensions, project fear, prostitution and the PLP. The government was accused of trying to smuggle out a review of the UK pension age this week when it announced the plan as Westminster was focused on the so-called Snoopers Charter. Ministers revealed former CBI bus John Gridland would look at whether the current threshold of 66 by 2020 is optimal in the long run, prompting fears people might have to work into their late 70s or even early 80s. Owen Smith, Labour's shallow work and pension secretary, told the HuffPost UK that it was shameful the government have tried to smuggle out this important news in a written statement, hoping it would go unnoticed. Work and pension secretary Ian Duncan Smith was called to the Commons on Wednesday to explain the review, but IDS came out fighting and accused Labour of utter idiocy and worrying and scaring people. He said Labour only called into the Commons as a couple of newspapers wrote a few articles. However, he did not rule out the state pension age accelerating. Here's Owen Smith in the Commons. To read this morning the pensions minister's statement in another place in response to the news of this review that under the Tories the state pension age should no longer be considered as a retirement age. That you'll only be able to retire if you're rich enough or if you've got a fat private pension, otherwise you will have to keep working, working until you drop, as one pensions professor warns this morning. Graham, are we going to have to work till we drop? Um, I plan on dropping dead about 58. Right, well, you'll definitely be working until right. that point, but that sounds okay. like um, So, yeah, as, as, as you summarised there, Owen, um, the government announced they would be reviewing the state pension age. Um, at the moment, it's or it's about to be 67, but if you believe some financial experts, it could be as, as late as 81 before we get handed the, the state pension. The bottom line is we're all living a lot longer um, it becomes a lot more expensive for the state to provide us with a state pension. Um, so we're going to have to look at ways of... So um, it's awful. Yeah, it's awful. Or, or it, I suppose it's, it's, it's the swings and roundabouts of, of modern medicine and, and, and living longer is that that's great, but then we won't have any money when we, when, when, when we get older. Just going back to the process of this, so it's going to be a review looking into what age people should retire. Did they try and sneak it out? Well, actually, it's a good oh. point because um, I was at lobby briefing on the same day, Tuesday, and we'd spotted this on the order paper. And there were 10 written ministerial statements on the order paper on Tuesday, quite a lot. Um, and surprise, surprise, number 10, when they did their read through of what's important that day, mentioned Michelle Moan, the bra queen's uh, little uh, review of entrepreneurs. They mentioned a little bit about the BBC, but nothing about this pension. So I stuck my hand up and said, uh, why haven't you mentioned this massive pensions review? And they said, oh, well, we don't mention everything. But of course, lo and behold, we spotted it. The Standard did it really big and lots of newspapers fought it up. What's interesting, of course, is pensions. God, it's a boring subject. I mean, young people do not and ought not to be talking about pensions. You know, it's, it goes with the territory, isn't it? Yeah. Your young people, 
please tell me this is Don't look at Graham. <laughs> whoa, 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 but everyone under the age of 55 could well be affected by yeah. this. So, so there's look, everyone in the room. Just, <laughs> just, just under there. Because the office, so the ABR, the Office Budget Responsibility, has forecast a pension age will have to rise to 69 by late 2040s and maybe to 70 by the early 2060s. And as you said, Royal London, a pension provider, said it might even go up to the age of 81. Because I think the son yeah. had retire at 80 and the man had retire at 75. Yeah. On the, it so, it depends know. who you speak to, exactly. I suppose. But the thing is that, you know, the, the, the fact that young people don't like pensions, the fact that it's inherently boring, is something that Whitehall really exploits. Look at the WASPy campaign where yeah. women recently have been bitterly complaining about the fact that they weren't kept informed about the change in pension age for them, the equalisation. Many of them, women over 50, think that they weren't told 15, 20 years ago this was coming down the track. And let's be honest, the, the, the inertia of the whole thing is what helps government. People don't tend to look at their future. But now I think actually finally young people, just as they're worried about getting on the housing ladder, are really worried about how they're going to get screwed on this as well in their old age. To come to the government's defence on whether it was snuck out or not, they, Ian Duncan-Smith did to make, make the point that this is part of a, a, a agreed by, government, by, by everybody in legislation, a, a five-year review of the pension age. It shouldn't, it shouldn't come as a surprise that this is going to happen. But what Labour is pointing out that within the terms of reference of the review is that the government are looking to, to break the link between the state pension age and life expectancy. So actually they might put it higher than, than than we should should be going to. Might so actually it's a genuine... Yeah, so we've got to so keep working a, after we die. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's basically what they're saying. Do but you need this right? <laughs> but there's an important point there, which is, as Graham says, it's about a radical change, not just a sort of update of what we've done before. And the radical change is one option in this review is saying that some different types of workers get different retirement age. So if you're, if you're a so-called blue-collar worker, no one uses that phrase anymore. Uh, if you're a manual worker, of course, it's ridiculous to expect you to work till 76 or 81. Um, uh, and that'd be kind of Victorian if you did. Whereas if you're, you know, if you're a journalist or you're a lawyer or you're someone oh, in the so we're city, totally screwed then, yeah, then, then you can tap away on your laptop at home in your late 70s. It'd be a silver surf, you can still earn a wage. Arthritis in your fingers. Exactly. But, but, but that's what they're getting at, the fact that there's a different job market out there. I think Ian Duncan Smith even suggested yesterday that um, if you're Scottish because you've got lower life expectancy, you'll get your pension earlier. Now, maybe that's a part of this government sop towards the SNP to keep them on board over everything else, but I don't know. Well, that leads us nicely into this week's quiz. Oh, OK. <laughs> now, I love a quiz. Well, you'll listen. Sorry, it's a pensions-based pen- quiz. That, please gonna, listen. OK, listen. You're licensed to America. Right. What is the name of the Work and Pension Secretary? The Work... It's, it's, it's Ian Duncan Smith. Yeah. What is the name of the Shadow Worker Pension Secretary? It is Owen Smith. That's right. So we have a Smith-based quiz. <laughs> oh. Stop me if you think you've heard this pun before. Right. I'm gone. <laughs> Genuinely so give us the Okay. So <laughs> I'm not. So okay. Listen. I'm going to give you some retirement ages from around the world, different countries. Yeah. And you've got to tell me. I know where around the world is. I'm just checking. You've got to tell me whether this is, they have a higher retirement age than the UK. So. If it's higher, heaven knows I'm miserable now. Okay. <laughs> okay? Yeah. If it's lower, I know it's over. Right. <laughs> There's right. two Smith songs. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, right. Higher yeah. is miserable. Higher, heaven oh. knows I'm miserable now. Okay. The UK retirement age for men 65 currently, women 62 currently. Okay. Vietnam. Ooh. 
Vietnam, you retire at 60 for men, 55 for women. Wow. There we are. Germany. That's got to be lower. They're, they're much, you know, work, more worker-friendly than we are, aren't they? Even though they're, they're, they're workaholics. I think it's heaven knows we're miserable now. Yeah. I, 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 there's a spanner Stay in the work. Stay awake, work. mate. There's a spanner in the work. <laughs> no, thinking it's to the man thinking. Right, OK. Uh, heaven it knows is, miserable now. It is heaven knows I'm miserable now. 65 years and three months, oh. both men and women. Right. Uh, China. Strong work ethic. Strong work <laughs> ethic. That's got to be older. I think that's that's heaven knows I'm miserable now. Graham? Yeah, heaven knows I'm miserable now. I'm going younger then. You're right to go younger. I'm smashing this. It's 60 for men and 55 for female civil servants and 50 for female workers. Mm. Says it. Says it. Uh, Norway. The social democratic model that people aspire to, and everyone's talking about it at the moment because of Brexit. Absolutely, it's quite, it's quite cold. So, not right, right. 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 Lower, lower. Don't I know it's on. over then. Yeah, you think it's lower? Yeah, yeah. Lower, lower than Britain. Yeah, lower, definitely. Higher, just to be contrarian. Heaven knows you're miserable now. Sixty-seven. Wow, for both Ned really's nearly genders. I know my pensions. And. Finally, uh, United States of America. What would be the American dream, do you think? Well, that would be lower than us, I reckon. I reckon that's lower. I'm yeah, gonna go higher. I'm going to go higher. I'm going to go, oh, go what, what, whatever Ned said. Whatever Ned said. <laughs> You're not the using higher. the terms. Use the song. Heaven knows original now. Knows. You're right. Heaven knows original now. 66. Wow. So I think Ned get 100% there. Yeah. First time for SWAT. Anyway, so that was uh, that was this week this week's quiz. It wasn't a snappy this week, was it? But anyway, uh, the Pensions Review wasn't the only government released this week to provoke controversy. The snappily titled "Alternatives to Membership: Possible Models for the United Kingdom Outside the European Union" set out different ways the UK could engage the EU in the event of Brexit. According to the document, British sweet and chocolate makers could face a 30% sugar tax if the UK left the European Union. Northern Ireland would be confronted with difficult issues about the relationship with Ireland and tariffs could affect farmers and other exporters. David Cameron dismissed the Project Fear tag, preferring to brand the dossier as Project Fact. Cabinet Office Minister Matt Hancock was willed out to defend the dossier and here he is on the Daily Politics being grilled on why Switzerland seems to trade with the EU quite satisfactorily, despite not being a member. Not having access to the single market is such a disadvantage, and as you say, Switzerland yeah. doesn't have it. How come per capita Switzerland exports five times as much as we do? Because it, Switzerland is much cl physically much closer and surrounded by the European Union. Well, that's got nothing to do with yes, it. In it a does. digital age, yes. geography is almost irrelevant. No, because one of our biggest so, trading partners is Ireland, and Ireland's the only country that we've got a land reason. Yes, and Switzerland historically has always been next to the Most countries that it's next to. Most of our to Ireland do not go through the Northern Ireland border. But you, you know that. I, I, so there we are, Matt Hancock there with the statement <laughs> of the feeling obvious. <laughs> I think that interview with Neil and Hancock is kind of a prime example of what we're going to get for four months, kind of trading of facts. There's an earlier bit as well where um, uh, Hancock was claiming that 75% of EU laws Norway kind of has to implement, and Neil said, no, it's not 75%, it's 9%. <laughs> so we're just going to get this over and over again. Yeah, we're going to get, we're going to get drowned in stats, aren't we? Um, Project Fear, so this, this, this dossier, Graham, you looked through it. 
did you read it and were you terrified of the thought of Brexit? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's... Yes, you were terrified. Well, it's, 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 it's designed to terrify. Universally, there is, it, it paints a negative picture of pretty much everything for, for, from, from farmers to, to tariffs to, so your, your supermarket shopping would, would, would go up. There's not a, a, a kind of a bright aspect. There is not one kind of ray of sunshine in, in the document at all. So the idea that it's somehow anything other than a, a document a document of doom um, is, yeah. is, is and that, that, That's why, I mean, let's be honest, Duncan Smith had the best line, which was that it's a dodgy dossier. Mm. And the really interesting thing about him saying that was, OK, negative advertising, you know, project fear... We always think it worked. It did kind of work in Scotland in the independence referendum. It does kind of work um, in general elections. I mean, look at that you know, brilliant photo of um, Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's pocket that w- went pretty big in the general election. Um, but I think there's a sort of savviness now about the British public and about the debate. So th- that all started, I think, from the dodgy dossier. That was the one moment where people thought, hold on. If the spies are lying to us... You mean the original dodgy dossier... The original Iraq WMD one. If they're all lying to us, then who can we believe? And so any sort of fear project these days is automatically sort of factored in by lots of campaigns. And so that's why you'll see the Leave campaign hitting really hard with rapid real-time rebuttals to all these things in the the document saying, well, that's not true, that's not true, here's alternative stats. And, of course, in the end, with the, the broadcasters having to be legally required to report both sides equally, all the punter hears is white noise. Yeah. He says, she says, and I'm not sure anyone has any more. also show how quickly we moved on from the deal. I mean, if the if Leave the use that scary as that dossier says, you know, it's kind of this terrifying... The deal is the SNP, is the deal that's offered yeah. to Scotland, yeah? So the, no, no, the, no, the, the, the Cameron deal. I beg your pardon, sorry. The deal yeah. Cameron got. But up until he signed it, he was kind of saying he would maybe possibly campaign to leave. And the idea that suddenly the deal makes it better and that this scary world he was prepared to go into unless he had the deal shows how quickly they've ditched kind of talking about isn't it. the problem for the uh, the in campaign is that how do you how do you make the status quo seem seem positive and, and a bright future yeah. so hey have more of this you know yeah. whereas the out campaign's advantage is that look look what you look what you could win look at this buccaneering future we could have so they've got an obvious Kind of positivity they can they can present. Yeah. Whereas if you if you're arguing for what what we've got now, I don't you know. But the problem is, you see, I was talking to someone at a briefing about all the the polling that's going on on, on the referendum earlier this week, and over fifty five. It's quite interesting for them. The word the phrase "leap in the dark" means absolutely nothing because it's not a leap in the dark. They remember what it was like before mm. the EU. Yeah. And so for them, it's, it's a really important point. A lot of older voters, it doesn't work on them. They think, oh, actually, it was quite good in the old days, the 60s, you know, we did all right. Um, you know, and a lot of UKIP voters and Labour voters tend to think like that, never mind Tory voters. So I think that's quite interesting. Uh, but at the end of the day, the Karl Rove mantra kicks in, which is, you know, it's only when you guys in the media are really, really sick of the stump speech and you are really sick of it that we know we're beginning to get through to the public. That's why you'll keep hearing these stock phrases, leaping the dark, um, better, stronger, safer, all that stuff. What's the other one? Um, best of both worlds, that's the other one. You're going to hear that sort of uh, Brexit bingo from now until June the 23rd because the government is determined that that's the only way to get the message across. just want to just flag up one thing. In, in the dossier, there was this wonderful bit where it says it would take up to a decade or more to negotiate a new agreement with the EU. 
That is literally any number. <laughs> Up yeah. to a decade. Yeah. Or more, right? Uh, that's literally any number. And there was a good bit where Lord Rose appeared before a select committee uh, yesterday. And Lord Rose is campaigning for Britain to stay in the European Union. Uh, and he kind of let it slip about the fact that actually we might be, might get better wages actually if we leave the European Union. Here we go. Moving on to um, the issue of, of immigration, very briefly, uh, thank you, Chairman, um, on immigration uh, and impact on wages. Um, if free movement were to end following Brexit, is it not reasonable to suppose that we could see increases in wages for low-skilled workers in the UK, just just off the off the back of the economic impact of, of free movement on, on wages? And well, if you short of labour, the price will frankly will go up. So yes. But it's not necessarily a good thing. Wages will go up. <laughs> That's not necessarily a good thing. It kind of is, actually, if you're trying to win some money. Graham, stat of the week time. Jingle for that, yeah? Stat of the week time. Oh, that sounds like a jingle. <laughs> yeah, do, not it? Well, there are moves afoot, are there not, to get something commissioned? Or is that, I'm uh, not going to provide a running commentary. Ships whispers. Right, okay, fine. Uh, the stat of the week this week is um, the UK paid £647 million. European countries for health costs last year, but received only £49 million in return. Okay. That was... That's the stat of the week. That was the stat published on Twitter by Labour MP John Mann, who ahead of it trailed it by saying the most extraordinary revelation of this year. Stat of the year? The most extraordinary revelation. Is he an outer? Um, I, the trouble about that is I don't really know, don't really know what it means. <laughs> well, who does? Home Affairs Select Committee this week began an investigation into whether the laws around prostitution need to be changed. Currently, it is legal in the UK to pay for sex, but it's illegal to solicit in a public place, curb cruel or own or manage a brothel, as well as act as a pimp. In Northern Ireland, which previously had similar laws, paying for sex became illegal on the 1st of June 2015. The Home Affairs Committee heard compelling evidence this week from current sex worker Laura Lee and former prostitute Mia DeFeoty, with Miss DeFeoty bravely revealing details of a gang rape she suffered while working in the sex trade. But the two women had very different views on how the law should be changed. First of all, here is Laura Lee. We, as sex workers, are seeking the right to work together for safety, um, and in doing so, to um, increase our labour rights um, as well as workers. Um, at present, the sex industry is the only industry in the UK that I can think of which compels me as a woman uh, to work alone and leaves me wide open to attack from predators and attackers. Mr Fauti very much thought the law should be changed to criminalise the people who buy prostitutes. I fully support the sex buyers law. As Kat said, the current law as it is more or less the same as it is in the Republic um, is not working. Um, the sex buyer law is the only thing um, that will stop the traffic and Europe has a horrendous uh, human trafficking situation at the moment and uh, the only way to stop that, uh, you know we can blame the pimps and the traffickers but as long as we do nothing to cut off what makes them exist in the first place then the traffic will continue. Um, I think the sex buyer law uh, shifts um, accountability onto the people that rightly uh, deserve and need to take responsibility for the role and the part they play in, 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 in a trade that is intrinsically um, harmful and corrupt. 
in. We're joined now by Jesse Thompson from the HuffPost Blogs team. Uh, Jesse, we've had people blogging about this issue for us in the past and it provoked strong feelings either side. One of the points raised in the meeting was that if you have the law where both the, the, the woman who sells sex and the person who buys sex, if, if both are treated as criminals, that actually, actually penalises both parties. And actually, the, the woman selling sex shouldn't be penalised, shouldn't be treated as a criminal. What do you think about that? I, th I don't think that anybody, sh I don't think it should be criminalised at all. Because um, if you're going to um, charge a woman for doing it, she might have got into this because something has happened to her and it, you know she's t turned to this work, um, she's not going to be safe um, if people are, are being criminalised for doing it. That's one of the points, isn't it, that it, it, that it will drive it underground if you, if you criminalise uh, prostitution and that therefore you put it into the hands of the, sort of the gangs, the criminal underworld, and women are made less safe. That's, people like Laura Lee have been arguing that quite strongly. But what, one thing she also said in the evidence that was really interesting was that um, she said in all her 20 years in the sex industry, she hadn't once met another prostitute who'd been coerced into it. And yeah. I find that, a lot of people find that really hard to believe. Um, I mean, we, we heard at least one example, her fellow witness, who very much felt like she had been coerced into it. Um, well, not coerced well, into the trade, but... No, but had, had suffered as a result. Yeah. And I think... You know, she did talk about the fact that when she was raped, you know, she wasn't thinking straight. And also she had lots of, you know, she was mainlining heroin at the time. So she wasn't all there. And the question is, a lot of prostitutes, are they on drugs? Many of them are. And if you're on drugs, are you, can you say you've actually willingly complied with being a prostitute? Or are you forced into it by an addiction? Um, and that whole point of coercion gets to the heart of this. No one in the right minds would say, if you've been coerced, then you should be made a criminal. But equally, um, if, you, if you are being coerced, then surely the law should be making sure that coercion doesn't happen in the first place. There's different examples around the world of this. So Sweden, um, like Northern Ireland, Sweden was the first to introduce where it's actually illegal to pay for the sex. So the client commits a crime and not the prostitute. And there's been various reports about this. The most recent report in Sweden says that uh, this has actually acted as a barrier to human traffickers because what it does, and this is the point which um, the, the former sex worker who appeared at the committee said, was it runs the risk of forcing what people do in the dark into their day lives. It runs the risk for buyers of being found, of being exposed, of being fined. And as a result, it takes away some of the demand. Uh, but if you look at what happens in Amsterdam, for example, where it was decriminalised, and the idea then was that women could work together, there was a degree of safety, they found the opposite. They found that actually there was more sex trafficking going on. So actually, you, you, you would think that it would, you know, it certainly goes with Mr. Faherty's view. But um, Laura Lee was very clear that she felt that if you go down that road, you're going to drive it deeper underground. And actually, it's going to be very difficult for women to, to be safe in, in these What's interesting politically about this is just how few politicians want to engage with it. I mean, you saw at the Select Committee the, sort of the, the sense of concern with both these witnesses, and the committee should be commended for at least discussing it mm. and taking evidence on it. It's very rare the British Parliament discusses this subject. You know, I mean, it is the oldest trade in the world, and very few politicians actually talk about it. They think, oh, it's slightly embarrassing. I mean, and yet we all know that lots of MPs, judges, you name it, this is classless, that prostitution is across all classes. Um, uh, it, it's a fact of life. The question is, what does a state do to, to regulate it or not? And I, I think that, that was one of the most interesting things, was that you won't get in any of the political parties someone campaigning 
as a party policy on prostitution. Occasionally, Lib Dems nibble at it. But, you know, I, I remember John McDonnell, I talked to about this about two years ago. He's strongly on the record of being in favour of helping sex workers and not criminalising them. I'm not sure he might want to say that now in his current position. Jesse, what do you think about politicians getting involved in this? Because it is an area, like Paul said, which is seen as uh, slightly very controversial. Do you think it's about time that politicians grasped that and looked at this law? Because both women giving evidence wanted to change the law, both in different ways. Do you, what, do, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think that they completely should. I don't know why they're not. I think that from the committee and what the women were saying, obviously the law that exists isn't working. So I think that... Um, I mean, I think sometimes when um, politicians try and get involved in issues of women's safety, like they, they get it wrong. So there was obviously the thing with the, with the women-only carriage with Jeremy Corbyn, and I think that the issue with that was that men were made to feel like the onus was on them, and that's why I think that criminalising someone that buys sex wouldn't work. because um, Would work or wouldn't? It wouldn't work because, me, you know, if somebody has got the impulse that they have to go and buy sex... They they don't want to feel like they're a criminal, so they're not gonna they're not gonna stop. But then they feel like, you know, they're like being made to be seen as the perpetrator of this. So obviously that wouldn't work. But um, yeah, and I think that um, the argument of decriminalising it um, kind of um, you can you can see that again with when we talk about drugs prohibition. You know, people don't want to engage in a conversation where these sorts of things are, um, we, we could look at them in a more liberal way, like legalising drugs, legalising prostitution. It would actually regulate these things and make people safer. And I don't, I don't know why that's something that politicians are worried about. Thanks so much for that, Jesse. Uh, contribution always appreciated. And uh, now back into the murky world of the corridors of power. Jeremy Corbyn attended his first meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party this year. Well, sort of. He didn't take any questions and left halfway through to go off and film the agenda on ITV. While most of the focus in recent weeks has been on splits in the Tory party over the EU, the Corbynistas have been quietly tightening their grip on Labour, well at least trying to. The HuffPost UK revealed that two of Britain's leading left-wing trade union bosses have been allowed to rejoin the party. Mark Sewotka, General Secretary of the Public and Commercial Services Union, and Matt Rack, General Secretary of the Fire Brigades Union, were cleared for membership by the party's compliance unit on Tuesday. Mr Sewotka, whose union had been at the forefront of strikes against the Tory government cuts, was expelled by Labour more than 25 years ago. There were also complaints of intimidation at the Young Labour Conference at the weekend from pro-Unite members and the hiring of former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis and ex-Channel 4 journalist Paul Mason as an advisor to the party have raised some eyebrows. Here is George Osborne getting in some digs at Labour's latest recruitment drive. What people need above all as homeowners or indeed people who are building houses is economic security. And that's what this government is seeking to deliver. And frankly, the fact that the Labour Party is now getting its advice from Yanis Varoufakis and the revolutionary Marxist broadcaster Paul Mason does not suggest to me that they've got an answer to economic security. Presumably they chose those two because Chairman Mao was dead and Mickey Mouse was busy. So, Chairman Mao's dead, Mickey Mouse is busy, but we've got, still got Paul Warren and Ed Simons. I'll let you 
Make your mind up which one's which. Uh, Paul, the PLP meeting this week, another ring endorsement of Jamie Corbyn's leadership? I think not. Well, Monday night is fight night, Owen, as we now know. PLP takes place 6 o'clock in committee room 14 in the on a lovely oak-panelled corridor uh, with lots of heavy carpets and nice paintings. And that is the theatre of doom these days for a lot of um, the leadership as Labour MPs, week after week, just say what they think is wrong and they vent their spleen. What happens, or tends to happen, is that um, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't turn up in person. He did turn up this week. He had to leave early, as you've mentioned. But he's apologised. He's going to come back next week, so we'll have this all over again. Basically, what the Labour MPs were most upset about this week was that John Trickett did a presentation, a slideshow even. He had a sort of PowerPoint. He is the Shadow Community Secretary, who is in charge of Labour's local election campaign. Now, he did a little slideshow which a lot of MPs were openly ridiculing in the room. It's the first time Trickett's ever done anything like this, his friends point out. Um, uh, his enemies point out, well, he's been an MP for long enough. He should be able to produce a competent presentation. In a nutshell, he came up with a few slides which said what Labour's messaging was going to be. But M- Labour MPs felt there was no real targeting against the Tories, no strategy against UKIP, that the slogans were lame. He even forgot one of the slides and got, got some of the figures wrong. Um, and that's why you had a couple of MPs... <laughs> and he oh, the country. Oh, exactly. <laughs> a, a couple of MPs were saying, look, this is, what is this, the Monty Python show? Another one said, you know... Well, the reason that Corbyn had this guy on straight after him, because it was like, you know, he he got trigger on to make himself look better. Um, Now, that's the depth of the sort of acrimony there is in the Labour Party at the moment. What was actually more significant was the fact that Trickett upset people by failing to put a target on what Labour thought they were going to get in the local elections. Don't forget, the backdrop to this is a real first contact with the general public between Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and the ballot box. So in May, we've got Scottish elections, where Labour almost certainly going to lose all the constituency seats. Welsh elections, where it looks like they're not going to be uh, in a majority anymore. At the moment, it's 50-50, and they've got a narrow uh, advantage. And UKIP could get eight seats. I UKIP the could seats. make big advances in Wales. Local councils is where a lot of Labour MPs are very, very worried that they could actually, for the first time since 1982, be an opposition party who doesn't make net gains in council seats. Now, that would be phenomenal. And that's why you you will hear on May the 6th, all these, if that happens, the comparisons with Michael Foote will trot out again. Um, so there is something big going on, which is this battle for expectations management on in May's elections. Obviously, a lot of the moderate MPs think, look, let's set the bar really high. He's obviously not going to get over the bar, and then we maybe things will happen after May to prove to the public that they, he's not good enough. Because when you when you sort of talk about you know, how Labour are going to do, if they're going to do bad, they point to the Oldham by-election and, and the big win and say, look, this does show that Corbyn can win. But are they setting themselves up for a fall there, though? Because that was such a big win, then anything less than that, it shows they're going, well, you can argue, shows they're going backwards. Though. Well, also, in Oldham, I mean, a lot of people on the ground who know that campaign say, they tell me, the very first um, that the Labour voters' canvas came back, the first message that came back from that canvas in Oldham was, we don't like Jeremy Corbyn, Labour voters. And so what they did was they changed the message on the doorstep and said, don't worry about Jeremy Corbyn, he's from London, Jimmy's from Oldham. And from there on, the problem wasn't a problem. And that's what I'm told is is what went right in, in Oldham. He doesn't give a damn, so we'll leave, we'll leave Jeremy Corbyn as the, as the rep butler of British politics. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 